Buzu, Nindiwe Magana Dok. Bishkene Mishtadamikwe, Indigo Anishinabimon. Idash Jill Makan, Indizinika Zaganashimon. In one of the tribal languages of my people, Ojibwe, I greet you, saying hello, all my relations. My Anishinaabe name is Flaming Horsewoman, in English, Jill Mackin, and I'm most grateful to be here. My home is along the Rocky Mountain Front that many of you probably know here in Montana. The Rocky Mountain Front became a homeland for our people after a long journey, a very long migration. As settler colonists arrived into New England, our people began to migrate. They began a long retreat westward. It took 400 years. And finally, they arrived along the Rocky Mountain Front, and there they lived as a buffalo culture people and trading people. And they lived in a corridor from the Cypress Hills of Saskatchewan, which you can see here, kind of right above the S and Métis on the top Métis. They lived in a, in a corridor there running north-south from the Cypress Hills down to the area around Augusta, Shoto, and Cascade. So that is where I come from. My people, the Ojibwe people, there's 150 bands of Ojibwe spread out all over the North American continent, following the North American, following the boundary line, the 49th parallel. Uh, there's about 130 in Canada and about 20 in the US, and we are part of a larger tribal group, the Métis people, which is a mixed heritage people, people intermarried as part of their survival in the colonial era. And so there's the heritage represented that is Assiniboine, Cree, Ojibwe, French, Scottish, Irish, English, all intermarried into our tribe. And there they lived um, as trappers, as traders, and following the buffalo. So with that information, my presentation, my research, focuses on foodways and lifeways of our people. Our native knowledge has been badly fragmented by the process of colonization. And so I'm very interested in how we arrived where we are. I was inspired by native knowledge revitalization in my previous work in Indian education to come to um, my doctoral work here at Montana State University. So I live here in Bozeman now, and I'm in my second year of doctoral students at Montana State. Um, and this today, my presentation, Mapping Métis, Mapping Métis, Native Knowledge on the 49th Parallel, is a look at the way that science and native knowledge interacted in the process of the survey of the 49th Parallel, which is our boundary line between the U.S. and Canada. I use Métis in two ways in this work. Métis, with a big M, represents our people, the buffalo culture and trading people of the Northern Plains. Métis, with a small m, is an old Greek use of the word revitalized by James Scott, a Yale professor. And basically what it means is local knowledge or indigenous knowledge. So let me start first with a story. On September 20th, 1872, Two groups of scientists, engineers, and astronomers, 100, nearly 100 in each party, 
arrived at the heart of the continent in Pembina. That's near modern-day Grand Forks, North Dakota. There they came with all their scientific instruments. There they came with all their provisions, prepared to make a long bit of work in trying to survey a straight line boundary line, the longest in the world, between two countries. The first thing they ran into in September was a fierce three-day snowstorm. When they got through the snowstorm, their first task was that they needed to find a monument that had been erected by the 1826 Commission that had come out to the area and marked the very northwest corner of Lake of the Woods, which would be the beginning of the 49th parallel. But lo, though they made lots of um, measurements and observations with their fine equipment that they'd brought, the state-of-the-art equipment and surveying at the time, no sign of the monument was to be found. As the British Journal reads, in order to ascertain and mark the international boundary line with the greatest possible accuracy, the best portable instruments were provided, including a, a zenith telescope, which was used by the American, was invented by the Americans, but also used by the British. And it was supposed to be the best, most portable and accurate survey instrument in the field. So though, though their observations indicated with precision where the monument ought to be, on the edge of a little point appearing above the marsh, it could not be found. So they continued to make their observations, frustrated. Finally, an old Chippewa man showed up. And he said, the construction of that monument 42 years prior is most present in the memory of our people. They remembered it. And he sent several of the younger tribal members out into the marsh and showed the commissioners exactly where that monument was. It was a pyramid of wooden logs. And so, though they found the, the, the monument, they continued to make observations use, using their instruments. And this went on for some time, working in a freezing swamp. Finally, this was really great lengths they went to, they wrote a letter back to Washington, D.C. and contacted a Mr. Barclay, who had been a member of the 1826 Commission that placed the monument. And they were really happy that even though he was 90 years old, he still remembered the particulars of the circumstances of building the monument. And it was then that they adopted the Indians uh, point as the beginning point of their operations to survey the 49th parallel. So this leads me to several questions. <laughs> Why did they go back out with their instruments measuring in the swamp after the monument was found? Why did they go to this extra work of contacting Mr. Barkley and waiting for a letter or response to come back from him to say, yes, that sounds like the right place. You should adopt it and go on with your work. It leads me to the question of what is going on with science on the 49th parallel survey. In 1818, there was a convention that some call the Anglo-American Convention, and it was there that it was adopted the 49th parallel would be the defining uh, line between the US and Canada. 
It took some time, though, like it does in nation building, for the victors to figure out how are we going to go about marking that line and what's out there. So finally, they sent out the early commission in 1826, marked the monument, but then it was later that they really began to get down to the work of marking the line and surveying it. In 1858, they sent um, a group of surveyors to, to do the survey from the Pacific Ocean, the San Juan Islands, over to the Rocky Mountains. But then the Civil War started, and a lot of the commissioners that were working on that survey weren't able to continue with the other portion of the survey because they needed to go as military officers and serve their country in the Civil War. So they come back to the survey at Lake of the Woods, modern-day Minnesota, in 1872. And this is the part of the commission that I'm, I'm visiting with you about today. Here's the kind of work that they did. This was a high era of the use of science in survey and marking a line such as the 49th parallel. Some of the work that the surveyors did was to take measurements, mathematical measurements, astronomical measurements, and record them like this. Some of the other work they did was every 25 miles, they set a boundary marker. And where there were wooded portions, they cut down a 30-foot swath of the forest. That was a lot of work on that Pacific Coast part of the survey, and a lot of work in Minnesota cutting down all those trees. The other thing that they did was that they made maps. And if you love maps, these are beautiful, luscious maps with a lot of detail, and there's a lot of maps. So what else do we see going on in the survey, in science in the survey? We see from the journals that they had other kinds of interest going on in the work that they did. And sometimes you see the surveyors going on long side trips, maybe 120 miles from the border, maybe even north of Edmonton, to see what's out there. You see these reconnaissance um, missions and information in the journal that reads like this. The coal-bearing strata are exhibited more or less continuously throughout the whole of this portion of the river, but about 130 miles above Edmonton, the last of the sandstone bluffs is seen, and the strata assume their rationalist character which they present at the present. Or another part, it says, and from, from Campbell in his journals, it is not well to exaggerate the excellence of the special productions of the northern lands, since the actual facts are sufficient to warrant their settlement and cultivation. So you see the journals being a report back to both respective governments, telling where there's extractable resources, timber, coal, minerals, where there's land that can be settled and farmed. And you see information about where the prospective governments might put sites of transportation and infrastructure that will support settlement and extraction. One such example of that comes from the Northwest Journals. The Canadians were looking for a place for the Canadian Pacific Railroad to go over the mountains. It was getting late in the season, and they needed to wrap up their work. They were worried about getting extra funding, that they might be able to come back and continue their work in the next year. So 
they got in touch with some Kootenai Indians. And they said, can you tell us the most direct route to get over these mountains? They were twisty, windy mountains with lots of trees. The Kootenai Indians showed them a pass, and they said, this will get you through. And with, with great ease, they made their way over. But then, in, after you've seen this evidence of the native knowledge being used in the survey, just a few paragraphs later, you hear about how they're writing a, a letter back, the Royal Geographic Survey is writing a letter back to London asking for more money and saying, we made this great discovery, we found this pass, and there's absolutely no mention of the Kootenai Indians' knowledge or their role in the survey. Native knowledge contributed to the success of the survey in lots of ways. You see it in wayfinding. You see it in the situations in which the technology brought with the survey parties fails. So for example, the Métis have something called the Red River Cart. It's a two-wheel cart, ox-drawn or horse-drawn, and it's highly navigable. It can make it through all kinds of terrain. Uh, they adopted the Red River carts. They either hired them or purchased them at different points in, the, in their work and instead of the wagon carts. Other examples are they used dog trains. It took some time for them to learn from the native people how to work with dogs and hauling their gear through the winter. When their snowshoes from Montreal failed them, they had to learn how to build bigger ones. So they contacted native people. They got in touch with native people and learned to make larger snowshoes. And as in this example, you see that they had to adopt local clothing in order to stay warm. Their crews working all winter. Winter was one of the biggest times for them to be able to complete some of the work through the swamps once they froze over. So they were out there working in all kinds of conditions. They needed native clothing, buffalo robes, snowshoes, leather clothing. There's other examples, too. If you look at this picture, this looks a little bit like a native camp or a Métis camp. But here you see the Métis Red River carts, and here you see the lodges. This is indeed a survey camp rather than a Métis camp. Here you see the use of Métis laborers called sappers. They built the monuments that went along the line. They, they worked in other ways, too. They were woodcutters. They helped cut down the trees. Um, they ferried supplies and left caches for, along the trail for the, the survey crew to come through. And when the Canadians didn't have a military escort, they hired what's known as the 49th Rangers, which is a group of Métis men who became the diplomats and soldiers that protected the Canadian survey party. So then the question is, with all these clear examples of native knowledge on the 49th parallel, for me, how were the native people treated when they came along, when they were mentioned in the journals? You see a lot of words in the journals with use of description of native people encountered along the way as lazy, ignorant, backwards, that their knowledge was limited. And you see that they, there's sections of the journal where they discuss, soon these natives will be gone. Here's an example. These Indians, quote, these Indians now carry on a good trade in furs, which are exchanged at the Fort Garry settlement 
of ammunition, guns, or articles of clothing. This district of Turtle Mountain will be invaluable to settlers in the future, furnishing as it does an ample supply of wood for building and fuel purposes and wintering ground for stock, while the adjacent plains will serve as grazing ground during the summer. So you see clear examples of the Métis on the survey, Métis native knowledge on the survey, in wayfinding, geographic knowledge, diplomacy, security, labor, technology, all these many things. But how are the Métis on the survey treated? How are the native people treated? There's an appropriation of their knowledge. What your, your place becomes our discovery. There's delegitimizing language, language that takes away the dignity of the native people. There's silences on the map where their places don't show up, their homelands don't show up. And then there's outright discussion of the removal of native people, which is on the horizon. So colonial change, this is a time of great upheaval. And how you read the journals um, depends the lens you come from. But what I see is a, native, a, a narrative of disappearance. Things are beginning to change dramatically. And what's on the horizon is a disappearance of the people, big changes for the land, disappearance of plant species, animal species. Things are changing. The explorer's narrative reads like a sand painting of indigenous people slowly disappearing from the landscape. Grains by grain, grain by grain, they drift away, making a home for the colonial settlers. As the surveyor's eye moves through the country, reporting locations of arable lands, mineral deposits, and other resources, such as timber and water, the places are reduced to extractable resources and settleable land. The existing web of people and place, nature and culture is broken. What I see in the relationship between native knowledge and science on the survey is a hierarchy of knowledge. That science becomes the dominant view as related to uh, commerce and extraction. And that is the colonial piece, the colonial machine rolling across the land. And native knowledge and native people become subdued by that. So the question is, well, why does this matter? This may be an old story. But I think the relationship between science and native knowledge is still relevant in our age. There is an um, Indian, East Indian, woman named Vandana Shiva. She's a physicist and philosopher, and she's leading a worldwide movement to save seeds, save species. And she makes the connection between monocultures of the mind begetting monocrops. As you might know about my homeland, where I come from, there's a significant monocrop in agriculture there. So you see this relationship of science and capitalism, science in the colonial era, moving across the land, things changing significantly for cultures, things changing significantly for the land those people belong to. Here's another example. I found this, uh, this picture, it's a satellite picture, and it, you can actually see the 49th parallel appearing on there. And it just shows you how the policies of countries 
and the way that people look at the land, the subsidies that are given, change the topography, change the, change the uh, way that the land appears. Finally, I, I happened to come across this while my husband, my dear husband, came across this advertisement in a recent National Geographic magazine. This is an advertisement for Cargill. And it's, it's funny how the people still, how it's still portrayed that uh, this was a blank landscape ready for agricultural and commercial development. In 1865, the American Midwest was a blank canvas poised for transformation. Our founder saw the potential and began his trade business there, and so on. I think that the legacy of what happened in the journals is continuing today, and that's my concern in my research with the relationship of native knowledge and its, exist, its continued existence in our world and its relevancy to the health of our people and the health of our land. Thank you.